0: This is, in hindsight, half a century of research discoveries in Canadian history, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. great pleasure today to speak about episode 18. Lester Pearson and now it's coming into my consciousness because I can certainly remember when he was Prime Minister 1963 to 1968 and many many memories of those years. Of course he was absolutely world famous because of his skills as a diplomat, Canada's most famous diplomat really, who engineered the extremely Difficult situation in Suez in 1956, effectively helping to avoid World War. Another absolutely terrible contribution. But today I'm not looking so much at his work as a peacemaker, which is well known. Instead, I'm interested in really his administration as prime minister, in particular on with the First Nations. And in a way, this episode is a continuation of my book, which came out two years ago, Seen But Not Seen, which studies, looks at how influential Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians, miss the importance of Indigenous societies and cultures. This is, in a way, a minor chapter of the book because it looks in-depth at one individual and his blind spot towards the First Nations. An extremely Inspiring individual, but very much typical of his times. And this, there's nothing that's, this This is just typical behavior. Conventional attitudes of the time. At the same, and, and, and in doing this review, I want to make that quite clear. It's not, not any condemnation, not certainly, not at all. It's just trying to explain a mentality. And we've done this before. So it's a continuation of that theme. At the same time, there were some bright spots in his perception of the aboriginal, of the indigenous peoples, and I'll touch upon them—the ones that I could identify. What is a joy with this topic is the literature. You have uh, the three volumes of Pearson's memoirs, uh, which, particularly the first volume, is is a delight. He was not—he had passed away—for the volumes two and three, and they were done by others, assembled from his notes, but even they are good too and as well we've got excellent biographies particularly the two volume study by john english professor former mp and a very prominent historian who it, these these are very helpful uh, also famous peter newman he did a contemporary study of the pearson years that's useful and Andrew Cohen, I like very much his short biography of Pearson. So I come in with with good background on this one, good backup material. But the issue is, where are the First Nations? I didn't in the in the secondary literature, it's they're not prominent at all. So that's what I'm going to try and do, try to bring it out, try to flesh it out, and I leave it really, I pass the baton to younger scholars to take it up and do other prime ministers as well. So here's my shot at it. Lester Pearson and Indigenous Canada. Well, we know Pearson's accomplishments. Well, of course, was Canada, Canada's most famous diplomat? Well, question. Secondly, his domestic achievements, because he was prime minister for, well, 63 to 68, and yet so much was done. The Canada Student Loan Plan, the Canada Pension Plan, a new national flag, a colorblind immigration policy, Medicare bilingualism. It's extraordinary, the accomplishments of this prime ministership. Yet, once again, Pearson's record in Indigenous affairs awaits critical review. And that's, once again, <laughs> the curse of the university instructor, repetition. That's That comes from the classroom. But I, I think that point's made. We're going to look at the, the Indigenous side right now. But at the outset, that's accentuate the positive three initiatives of Pearson's come immediately to mind, and under Pearson's watch, for example, the first major development in my opinion, was his appointment of Roger Taillet from Manitoba to the cabinet. he became Minister of Veterans Affairs. he was a distinguished uh, had a distinguished record in World War Two and Taillet from St. Boniface, Manitoba. He became a cabinet minister, and he is the first self-identified Métis member of the federal cabinet. That's impressive. Secondly, it was under Pearson's watch that the federally appointed Hawthorne Commission in 1966 produced the first of two volumes of a survey of the contemporary Indians of Canada, Economic, Political, Educational, Needs and Policies. This is a landmark study. Very, very important. And it has a very pro-Indigenous tone to it. Although, surprisingly, it made no reference to treaties. See how, so You can see how far we've advanced in the last half century. Treaties now are given the importance that they deserve. Well, the Hawthorne Report demonstrated that the First Nations suffered from poverty and unemployment. And for the first time, suggested that separate, self-governing Indian communities might persist indefinitely. In short, backing away. This is the commission's report. Backing away from this assimilation slightly. After the publication of the report, the prime minister committed his government to revising the Indian Act after consultation with the First Nations. Well, Pearson, of course, resigned, and his successor Pierre Trudeau took a different stance. And that will be. We still have episode nineteen. I won't have to preempt myself. The third uh, contribution that Pearson made was he helped the First Nations financially to build a pavilion for, the, for, for Expo 67 to tell their story to non-Indigenous Canadians at the World's Fair. And that, that certainly opened up my eyes and that of many others, those of many others. Uh, it was an, really really a contribution so those three. However, that being said, there's the tip of the hat now. That being said, overall, his administration appears uninspiring with the relationship with the First Nations. And the reason, let's try. And as I say, this is very tentative. I wait for a young scholar with vim and vigor to get at this. Indigenous or non-Indigenous, whatever, just go at this. Because what is the explanation? And it explains a whole age. It explains not just Pearson, but his his whole generation, and, and those before him of non-Indigenous Canadians. Well, in short, Indigenous affairs were not a priority for this young man who'd grown up in small Ontario towns where his father, a Methodist minister, had served. The reason for this is in his, in Pearson's youth, the percentage of Indigenous Canadians, of, of First Nations, had declined so it was first nations were 2% of the total canadian population when he was a young man and from the perspective of most non-indigenous canadians they were invisible they lived on reserves as wards of the crown under indian agents and many non-indigenous canadians if they gave them any time at all believed they were dying out Pearson's youth was spent in southern Ontario, in small communities, and, and, and several. His dad had several charges, uh, several times, mission, uh, several churches in Toronto at different times. But he grew up essentially in the southern Ontario, in the large, by, by and large, in the Toronto area, and as a young as young man, he would learn nothing about the cultures and histories of the indigenous groups. That is clear. I said the same. I went under. I had the same experience. It was the rich indigenous past of the North Shore of Lake Ontario was left uncommented, uncommented on in the schools. It was eleven thousand years old, and it was missed. The whole storyline was missed in the episodes on the Mississauga. We've covered that, and. It, it just it's just what what an omission it was. He didn't have any background in this at all. Didn't know about the treaties in the Toronto area; they were unknown. Well, Pearson was—he was a good student. He really was, and he was actually a good athlete as well. And really, his his interests really were athletics. Uh, certainly, at university, he went to Victoria, Victoria. University in the University of Toronto. And we've covered Victoria already. We did so in the last episode. He went there, just he entered just before World War One. World War I broke out. And well, he wanted to serve and he enlisted. He went over, uh, actually, uh, he went first to Greece because there's a, a British, uh, and Canada, of course, is allied with Britain. Uh, he was in the hospital work there, stretcher carrier. And he went first to Salonika in in Macedonia in Greek Macedonia so that was a, quite an experience but he wanted really to get to the front so he asked for a transfer and was sent for officer training in England um there was an accident though he it, it was obliged to come back to canada so but he he uh, wanted to be a flyer as well and he took some prim- for preliminary training but this this um miss happens this accident prevented him from continuing on so he came back to canada and um, briefly uh, goes back to victoria Uh, incidentally he um, was given a a, a credit for one year by going overseas and when he returned he was given an accelerated course so he was able to finish his university in in just with just an abridged final year and he was very good in history well, after graduation, he looks around uh, rather several career opportunities. One being in business, but uh, including a stint in Chicago, <laughs> but in in, in meatpacking business, um, as it just didn't work. It wasn't his thing at all. Um, he was able to hear about a scholarship. Uh, the Massey Foundation had uh, paid for. Uh, expenses of canadians very talented ones to go to britain to study at oxford and he got that so that's that's a fork in the road and he takes it and begins to prepare to be a history prof he studies at oxford he's given an offer by toronto he was a good student and um came back to victoria and uh, the university of toronto and there he begins his um, teaching um he's got um, well, the equivalent of an MA, and uh, begins work. Um, his particular interest in Canadian history was the Loyalists. And here's a miss, miss, Just sort of didn't connect here. He was interested in the United Empire Loyalists who came up after fighting for Britain in the American Revolution. And unfortunately, well, he didn't, continue, didn't finish it, but it was an opportunity to learn about First Nations because the Six Nations had fought for Britain, Joseph Brandt, and he could have easily uh, entered into the Aboriginal world with that, but he didn't. He didn't continue. The scholarship was not his thing. He loved sports, but um, and and coached teams and stuff and whatnot at UOT, varsity teams. Uh, and, but and he was a competent teacher and all, but his heart was not in the research side. Uh, an opportunity came out which was far more engaging to this extrovert, and that was the beginnings of foreign affairs in canada it was called the department of external affairs at that time there was an opening and um, he wrote the exams and he did very well so he was invited to go to ottawa he entered the diplomatic service works his way up very quickly he's a good problem solver and he's very very he's, he's people like him he's very very affable social and uh, lots of interests very uh, strong in sports good conversation he advanced quickly becomes a very key figure in the high commission canada's high commission in london in the 30s now the closest he came to i uh, indians uh, first nations people actually in his early days in some respects was england because there the high commissioner was uh, the high commissioner in London was in touch with the developments that were occurring because of Grey Owl. Grey Owl was taking England by storm, and so he would have known very much about a great deal about Grey Owl. Of course, we we did him as well in an earlier episode. It's kind of funny. But he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't know First Nations, doesn't know Indigenous world at all. And now he's in England and and uh, High Commission, and really involved in League of Nations work, very high f- high level diplomatic work. And the war is approaching, and he becomes very very concerned that it looks like there will be an- another world war. So he's so distant in England from these realities, and unfortunately misses a very important conference. And in the text, we also have the text as well as the audio with the episodes. And in the text, I explain this important conference he was not able to attend. It's a conference of the University of Toronto and Yale University about the North American Indian today. And it, it, continue, it, it is revolutionary because it included Indigenous people. For the first time, Indigenous scholars were invited from the United States and Canada. And they meet from 4th of September to the 16th of September, 1939. And it's really, really good. And the point being, the Americans are uh, way ahead of the Canadians, and they bring forward the argument that the goal of assimilation is passé. It's a terrible goal, and the culture should be supported instead of erased. This was John Collier. He was the in charge of Indian affairs in the States at the time, very advanced thought. Well, in Canada, it doesn't really take... This is, now, this is a different approach, and it's, Canada holds tight to the assimilationist formula. Opportunity is missed. Oh, In contrast, the United States, such a, con, it just total contrast to the inactivity, to, the, inact, to the, the, the lack of action on the Canadian side. An American official, one of Collier's key assistants, attended the Toronto Conference, and he wrote of the Canadian delegation, a more tight-lipped defensive group I've never encountered. They had no problems, knew all the answers, and the Indians were doing beautifully. So, well, it it was very disappointing. So, but anyways, Pearson, if he had been in Toronto, of course, this is the ideal. We're interested in his knowledge of indigenous Canada. This would have been a great opportunity, but he's not. and And what happens is the conference starts on September the 1st. Three days later, Britain declares war on Germany because of Germany's invasion of Poland. And the war is on. Canada joins one week later, so nobody hears this conference. The results, absolute disaster in that respect. Toronto media played no attention, or perhaps just a, a line or two. That's all. But with the with the invasion of with, with the beginnings of hostilities with Germany, and then the Soviet armies cross into Eastern Poland on September the 17th, and Poland and Russia divide up Poland. Uh, it's, 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 it's a terrible time for Canada's, Britain's major ally after the fall of France. And it was terrible till June of 1941, when miraculously from our side, Operation Barbarossa hit their over extends, uh, invades the Soviet Union itself, breaks this pact he's made with Stalin, and um, it's just too much. Germany, the Nazi Germany cannot count. It's too much to the huge Soviet Union to take. So the war takes a turn. And this is all what Pearson is involved with is so distant. We must be understanding indigenous things are a million years away from his mind at this point. This is the life and death of, of democracy is at stake. Wester Pearson in England, uh, obviously preoccupied, uh, horrific events are taking place. Meanwhile, in Canada, a young professor, an English professor at Victoria College, has become interested in First Nations. She has a cottage near the Perry Island First Nation or Saxon First Nation. And these are Anishinaabe. And she const- she knows them. She's concerned about their condition. She contacts a friend who just comes to the University of Toronto from McGill. And Eileen Ross is her name, a sociologist. She asks Eileen, what's going on with the First Nations? Are there any intellectuals that can can help with information about their, their situation today? And they can uh, Eileen contacts has several contacts. She includes John Humphrey, a young law professor at McGill, and asks him, uh, what What about First Nations? What can be done? Uh, and this is a classic example of the, of the ignorance, really, of First Nations issues at this time. Because John Humphrey, very concerned about human rights and interested, he replies, he's interested in the Indian problem, but John Humphrey's replies, he knows nothing about it. Now, here's the extraordinary development, the extraordinary piece of information. Only five years later, Professor Humphrey would write the original draft of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which changed international law through the recognition of the fundamentals of human rights. Isn't that extraordinary? Okay. Meanwhile, in Canada, same ind- indifference. Um, four major texts in Canadian political science appear in the mid '40s. All four, the commentary Indigenous Canada is minuscule to nonexistent. Well, finally, another development. Um, no so th- th- Duncan, uh, that's well, Duncan Campbell Scott's retired, but the same philosophy is is dominant, and the Canadian public is is really indifferent. Um, and uh, after the war, however, finally some movement. the federal government established a special joint committee of the Senate and House of Commons, and they investigated the, the native situation. This is long after the conference, mind you, but nevertheless, they finally got onto it. It's from nineteen forty eight to nineteen uh, from nineteen forty six to nineteen forty eight and the commission reports are given there are three years of public hearings, and the special committee perverse, produces its final report. Well, don't get too excited. The goal is the same. The First Nations must enter into the mainstream society. So we've advanced. We haven't advanced at all, except the new word "integration." Now, instead of is, of assimilation, is used. Integration was seen not only as inevitable but also as desirable. The greatest opportunity for Lester Pearson to learn about Indigenous Canada came after he left. Foreign Affairs or External Affairs, as it was called then, and entered at, at the urge of the Prime Minister. He entered the, the, the electoral race. Uh, Louis Saint-Laurent now was Prime Minister of Canada, and he entered uh, uh, to become an MP, he, his riding being East Algoma. that was, He would put himself forward to represent the region, which extended roughly from Sudbury to saint marie in Ontario and northward. Oh, well, hard to say, but up to Shaplow, up to communities about 100 miles in the interior. That was East Algoma. And this was a very important riding for Natives because it was one of the 15 ridings in Canada which contained a substantial concentration of Indians. That's a quote from government source. Now, at first, this wasn't much, really, because Status Indians didn't have the federal franchise. In 1948, when he first ran and they only got the franchise in 1968. So it didn't mean a great deal that there was a large First Nations population in East Algoma at the, at, until after 1960. But then it did because First Nations people had the vote. Now, we know that in East Algoma, uh, Pearson did have contact with First Nations people. Now, the reason I have this is thanks to Ed Rogers, my uh, unofficial uh, co-thesis supervisor, the chief ethnologist at the Royal Ontario Museum. I know this because Ed paid for a search of a vast number of Ontario newspapers for articles on the Indigenous peoples, a clipping service. And this clipping service did their job from 1964 to 1974. These clippings are a goldmine of information about contemporary attitudes towards the Indigenous peoples in Ontario. And in those days newspapers were full it's not now they're so so endangered so we know I've got a couple of examples of contact of Lester Pearson with First Nations people from these newspaper clippings also from other sources and one of them being um, the at uh, Algoma College there's a, a center on for for the study of uh, Indian residential schools it's a site of a former one itself and there they have. A number of uh, great body, well organized records, and they have some pictures of Lester Pearson visiting the Spanish Indian Residential School. So, I mean, we've got this is right right on target here. And, uh, anyways, this is typical of Pearson. He it doesn't really have background on on the schools too much, and, and it's such a small priority. He's, he's running for Parliament, and he's uh, cabinet minister. This point he's head of uh, canada's foreign affairs it's just it doesn't have it's just sort of on the sidelines it's one visit to the residential school maybe two um and what's he do he plays baseball with the students (laughs) now isn't that that's identifiable lester pearson he was a great baseball player a great sport he coached varsity teams he was a player so he gets right on he raised right in there just a wonderful person just you just Un- unbeatable, but of course he doesn't get on top of the file, and uh, but he then that's that's just one. It's interesting that he did that. Um, now another example is I'd like to tell you that he did know there, there was a, a, a conference. A, it was a powwow at Waquamicon. Waquamicon is the large Odawa. They're very close to the. Ojibwe. They're both Anishinaabeg people. The big uh, Adawa powwow at Wequemicon and Manitoulin Island. Manitoulin Island is the big island just on the North Shore of Lake Huron. And this is in August 1964. I wouldn't know a darn thing about it except that I found these clippings. And there, Lester Pearson, this is fun, Lester Pearson meets Two key people, um, well, lots of key people, but it's a national conference. First Nations people have come from across Canada for the fourth annual Wequemico Powwow. And um, they, they gave Lester Pearson, he was given a white feather for his work for peace at, in this 1964 Powwow. And uh, there were other leaders from leaders from beyond Manitoulin, one of, which, one of whom was Bill Watteney. Now, Bill Watteney was a lawyer and he had become head of the Indian Council of Canada uh, uh, or Indian organiz- uh, First Nations organization that had just recently been started. And he had pronounced feelings about Indian residential schools. We know that because I have from my good friend Toby Morantz, who in, in Winnipeg, as a young woman and as a high school student, she had volunteered to become the acting, the recording secretary of the Manitoba Annual Indian and Conference. Uh, in the early nineteen sixties, and she kept these minutes and I know from those minutes I'm not going to connect with Bill Whatney, a man to Laman, but first i'll just tell you Bill Wetney was one of the few people that brought up uh, Indian residential schools at these annual conferences and in toby's notes she she writes that he he drew on his years at the Red Pheasant Reserve in Saskatchewan and recalled that quote, missionaries took children away as, as young as age three separated them from their brothers and sisters. They were not allowed to speak Cree at school. So a very harsh view of, of this system of education. So Bill, of course, is extremely articulate. And Lester Pearson met him on this occasion. I doubt if they spoke about residential schools. But on this, at the powwow at Wakwamakon, Marion Pearson danced with Bill Watney and Lester Pearson danced with Jean Cuthand. Jean's the daughter, was the daughter, she's now deceased, of John Tetusis, one of the foremost Western mm-hmm. Canadian Plains leaders. It's incredible. I knew, I, I knew both of them, and a a, 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 pliv- a privilege, a privilege, a to have had that experience. So, anyways, it's Lester, he's there, he's socially, he's just right fits right in, like a hand in a glove, but he doesn't know the content. Well, the 1960s are an important decade for the Indigenous peoples. They're leaving the reserves, uh, particularly in Western Canada. They're coming into the city because they're migrating to urban centers in search of jobs, housing, and schools for their children. Now, the federal officials, they caught up on this. That 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 was perceived. And subsequently, many Indigenous friends of the Indigenous peoples wanted to accelerate Indian integration and work to end Indian poverty and alienation. Their emphasis was on economic and social development, but they did not concentrate on the cultural aspect, and that was ignored. And to our, the, the it just the, the neglect, of course, is, is the problem. Now, Mr. Pierce, just an example from the clippings again, these wonderful clippings there's an example of what why this lack of knowledge about cultures and history and whatnot is, is so detrimental. In World War II, arbitrary measures have been enacted to seize reserve lands. For example, the federal government in 1942 decided it needed a military training base on uh, Lake Huron and invoked the War Measures Act to expropriate Ontario's Stony Point Reserve to establish Camp Ipperwash. The Stony Point people now had to live on the territory of their Kettle Point neighbours. Well, all this is done in, in 1942. And, but it lingered on. The people protested this. This was only to be temporary. The land was to be handed back. The military base would be closed. The land returned. And it hadn't happened. It still hadn't happened in the mid-1960s. And there's a clipping which shows Lester Pearson with the MP for the area, discussing this and deciding that something indeed should be done, but the several hundred acres where the base, where the now was a cadet training camp, that should be retained for the moment. So it, it just shows you that, unfortunately, that was an aggravation. And it's not Pearson's fault, not at all. It's, it's the systems. That sore was allowed to fester. And in 1995, the Ojibwe, the National protesters occupied Ipperwash Provincial Park in southwestern Ontario with the intent to reclaim the disputed Indigenous land. So there, that's a a heavy, I'd love to see more work done on that. I can't do more than just cite to you the clipping. Now, another opportunity of learning, that is at Trinity College, that's the college I attended, a club, the Encounter Club, organized a conference on it had done one in Africa a couple of years before. And in 1966, it organized a conference on North American Indians, on the Canadian Indian. It was held 22nd to uh, 24th of January, 1966. Yours truly was in second year. I wish I could claim I was a heavyweight organizer of it. I wasn't, but I sure learned a lot from it. The conference was uh, for, uh, for Ian McKenzie, an Anglican minister, really led the assault on that one, organizing it terrific job. He had good contacts with the First Nations, and he organized a club. The Encounter Club came behind him. Many people signed up. Um, Michael Ignatieff was the first year at the time. He signed up to, to handle press relations, um, uh, other people, uh, the Unencountered Club members, got put their shoulders to the wheel, and and uh, it, it attracted people were invited. Senator Gladstone, Hugh Dempsey's father-in-law, Hugh Dempsey, previous episode, he was there. Um, uh, Gilbert Montier, a famous uh, Six Nations scientist, was there, a renowned expert in mineral economics. Um, others, Harold Cardinal, student, was there. He, he, Famous, famous career in Indian politics. Much later, Stan Mackay, later a moderator of the United Church from a First Nations person from Manitoba was there. Incredible cast. Basil Johnson attended. Fred Kelly, Grand Chief Emeritus of the Anishinaabeg Nation on Treaty 3. My goodness, a who's who? With entertainment at night. Howard Sky. Dancers from the Six Nations. This was an extraordinary conference and really so commendable. Who was going to be the banquet speaker? Mm. It was going to be Lester Pearson. Unfortunately, though, and it's easy to understand, December the 20th, he had to decline because of all other, uh, extraordinary other commitments. But, um, so he would have learned a lot. He really would if he could have stayed a little while, but he couldn't. It was a wonderful conference. Um, Oh, about 250 non-Indigenous university students attended, and 60 Indigenous uh, students uh, and and members of the public. It was a real, really great, great contribution. And and again, once again, unfortunately, Prime Minister Pearson could not attend due to a scheduling conflict. The conference received good press and of course, in the varsity, the u of t paper and the re- divergent views of the panelists were commented on, according to Ian Mackenzie, the main conference organizer. This meeting, the series of meetings quote, began a process of supporting or making a base for native people to be put in a position where they were teaching rather than the recipient rather than the recipients, as far as we know, the trendy college conference on the Canadian Indian was the first student-organized conference in Canada to deal with the First Nations issues. In the spirit of learning, Trinity students raised awareness and raised money, gathered Indigenous and non-Indigenous people from around the country, and put them together to listen and to learn from each other. So a very, 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 very important contribution. And of course... I wish I could say I was one of the organizers, but I wasn't because I was I was on the learning phase, and that was one of the reasons that propelled me to switch from my international interest, which is episode two, into Canadian, particularly Indigenous issues. Just to tie it all up, uh, Sylvia Lassam, Trinity College archivist, did a very good article on the fiftieth anniversary of the conference. And she pointed out uh, that she interviewed Ian Mackenzie, and again reported very clearly she that uh, Ian Mackenzie told her that it was conference was beginning a process of supporting or making a base for native people to teach, rather than being the recipients, and that that is the whole thrust of it. So, Lester Pearson overall wonderful secondary literature. His wonderful memoirs, great material to digest, to study. But just that one missing element. And it's not his fault. It's the whole generations. They didn't get on top of First Nations issues, of Indigenous issues. And we're paying the price of it now. And hopefully a new page has been turned in this new age of reconciliation. Thank you.